Welcome to the third edition of Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host and storyteller. Today's story takes place in northern Mexico. I call it the Monterrey Mystery. In 1998, Madison Rutherford, a successful and wealthy financial advisor from Connecticut, flew down to Monterrey, Mexico, to buy an exotic dog from a breeder near there. He had long wanted a fila, a rare subbreed of a mastiff, which could cost up to $2,000 or more. So, he rented a suburban in Monterrey and drove to Reynosa to buy the dog. On his way back to Monterrey, he perhaps fell asleep and ran off the autopista at a high enough rate of speed that it burst into flames when the suburban slammed into the steep embankment. Mr. Rutherford was perhaps knocked out by the crash and uh, burned alive, burned beyond recognition, as the Mexican federales concluded. All that was left was his charred medical alert bracelet and his watch with the inscription on the back from his wife to Madison, Love, Remy. Though his death was horrific and haunting, he had planned ahead so his wife wouldn't be left to struggle. He had two life insurance policies totaling $7 million in payoff value, so she was certainly going to be financially secure, though she would suffer emotional shock for some time. Naturally, the insurance companies were a little hesitant, shall we say, to write multi-million dollar checks right away. They wanted to make certain that the man who died in that suburban by a Mexican expressway was indeed Madison Rutherford. So they called in Dr. Bill Bass, the man many have called the father of CSI. At that time, he was the leading forensic anthropologist in the country. He flew down to Monterey to investigate the scene of the wreck, the state of the suburban, and the clues left behind by Rutherford's charred, disintegrating skeleton. I talked with Dr. Bass about this case myself, and I will let you hear from him directly in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you how Dr. Bass, today 92 years old, became a leading authority in the cutting-edge science of crime scene investigations. Dr. Bass, you see, created the first body farm. One of the things that often stymied particularly homicide investigations was accurately determining time of death. After some years of frustration with this challenge, he realized that what really needed to be done was to simply leave bodies out in the elements of nature and document rates and signs of decay. At the time he decided this would be a good idea, he was a professor at the University of Tennessee, and he went to the dean and he said, I need a place where I can leave the recently departed out in the fields to formally study decomposition of such cadavers. I would have loved to have been there to see the dean's response, but evidently he saw the logic of the idea, as wildly unconventional as it was, and he helped find space for the first body farm. It would become known as Death's Acre. What I found particularly fascinating is that Dr. Bass came to the idea not entirely from his desire to solve homicides. He first came to it trying to find a way to solve bovicide, the killing of cattle by modern-day rustlers, or meat thieves. Let me let him tell the story. Here's Dr. Bass. Let me go back. I taught for 11 years at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. Okay. So this would be a lot closer to you than I am now. Mm -hmm. 
and um, identified skeletal material for law enforcement agencies, particularly the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, they were having trouble with cattle rustling in western Kansas. Uh, Kansas has some of the large ranches like you do in Texas, uh, 150, 200,000 acres that you find in the plains of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska. And the if you watch Western movies, the bad guys will, uh, you know, steal the cows, they'll herd them up and drive over the hill and they're gone. Well, the bad guys don't do that today. The bad guys either own or rent a refrigerated truck, mm-hmm. and it will go out on these large ranches in the plains area, and they will kill the cows in the field, they will butcher the cows there, hang the meat up in the truck, and drive off. The rancher comes along one or two or three weeks later and finds all these dead cow carcasses. And the question is, uh, how long have they been dead? And if you're in law enforcement, what you need to know is, this tells you where in the sale of the meat they begin to look. And so uh, the director of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation at that time was a man named Harold Nye. He wrote me a letter asking me if I could determine how long a cow carcass had been dead. And so I wrote him a letter and told him that Harold, there wasn't much in the literature, and but if he could find a rancher who would be willing to give us a cow and kill it, I'll look at it every day to find out what happens. It's interesting that you're thinking about things that you don't realize you're thinking about. And I put a PS on the letter, and I said, Harold, we really need four cows. We need one spring, one summer, one fall, and one winter, because your major factor in decay is temperature. Uh, you decay much faster in the summer than you do in the winter. Of course. Well, nothing ever happened with that. By This was late 60s. Uh, I came to the University of Tennessee in 1971. I knew the medical examiner here at that time. I wrote Jerry that I was coming to Tennessee, and he asked me if I would serve on the medical examiner's staff to identify skeletal remains that came in through the medical examiner's system. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. So it really wasn't long. In the fall of 71, I began to get dead bodies coming in. Mm. And um, uh, I didn't have anywhere to put these. So I went back to the dean. I said, dean, I need this land to put dead bodies on. Everybody said, what did he say? (laughs) (laughs) He didn't say anything. He picked up the phone book the University of Tennessee and said, uh, gave me the man, this is a, this is a land-grant institution. Yes. Uh, and so I went over to the Ag campus, and I started with a sow barn. They gave me one of them, and this was the beginning of the body farm. Now, the real research at the body farm is done by graduate students. Uh, you really need somebody to go out there every day and literally look at that body and see what are the changes and how long are those changes taken. By 1980, business was picking up, and I was getting all kinds of of bodies coming in, and the graduates. And where where did the bodies come from? Were these uh, d- people who were killed, or are these people oh. who just expired, uh, who oh. were homeless? That's a good question. When when we first started, being on the medical examiner staff, uh, they came through the medical examiner system in Tennessee, and I expect you would have the same thing in Texas. Uh, in Tennessee. If you die and nobody claims your body, or they, let's put it this way, 
if you die and your body ends up in the medical examiner's system, as if you were shot or stabbed or those kind of things, and nobody claims your body, then the cost of that burial falls upon either the city or the county in which the death occurred. Well, the cost of burials today are about $800, and uh, with the budget systems the the way they are in Tennessee anyway, uh, they would much rather give me the body for nothing mm-hmm. than they would have, say, say $800 to bury that body. So, uh, so it's a good that, deal for them, and it's a good deal for you that, in terms right. of research. Now, as time has gone by, the body forms have become um, acceptable to most people mm-hmm. and has lots of of news coverage and a good reputation. And starting in 2003, people begin to donate their bodies. Yes. Uh, and we have a donation form that they fill out. And uh, in 2003, the most bodies we got in any, in any year uh, switched from the medical examiner system to the donated bodies and the donated bodies have continued to grow and have been the major source of bodies that come into the system. So now we go back to Monterey and the case of Rutherford. Dr. Bass has investigated or helped investigating hundreds of deaths. The Rutherford case he was able to solve in a few hours based on the scene of the accident, the condition of the suburban, and the genetic markers still present in the skeleton. Here he is again. I were talking before we started of a case I did in Monterey, Mexico, of a white male, a 32-year-old white male that tried to fake his death in a Chevrolet Suburban fire. And uh, And he had a a $7 million insurance policy. Yeah, he did. Four with Kemper and three with CNA, or maybe the reverse of that. But anyway, um, insurance companies don't like to pay unless you can make a positive (laughs) (laughs) This guy, he burned the guy that was going to fake his death. And uh, they called me to go down, and I went down and excavated the Chevrolet Suburban, which was, he put this individual in the Chevrolet Suburban that he had rented. And uh, he happened, though, to make the mistake is, he happened to use a 60-plus-year-old Mexican peasant who had lots of of Indian ancestry, American Indians. American Indians are basically Asians, are called mongoloid, and they have, for example, a, a, a genetic characteristic, you know, the shovel-shaped incisors, mm-hmm. the teeth are a little bit are different. Yes. And the first thing I picked up in excavating the Chevrolet Suburban, hey, we have shovel-shaped incisors. Oh, I don't like this. And also that there was occlusal wear. This is where uh, American Indians, instead of having an overbite like you and most of of your audience have, uh, they would have uh, the American Indians had an edge to edge bite in in, in the incisor region, and it was a clues aware. Well, those are little red flags that begin to fly mm-hmm. when you are looking at skeletal remains. Plus, the fact is, the older you get, the uh, the more osteoarthritic lipping you have. This is uh, the skeleton simply begins to wear out, mm-hmm. and when a when a joint begins to hurt a little bit, uh, the joint does not the bone does not want to you know uh, 
quit. So what it does, it begins to build up extra bone. And this is called osteoarthritic lipping. And uh, uh, the older you get, the more you have. When I'm lecturing to audiences, I said, you know, how can you keep from getting osteoarthritic lipping? <laughs> and nobody knows. I said, well, die young. That's the only way you can keep from getting it. I mean, you live long enough. And sure enough, this guy had extensive osteoarthritic lipping. Uh, okay, so, so the guy was supposed to be, uh, he was 30 years old or so. He was faking his death for a $7 million insurance policy, and he got a body from Mexico that was of a guy who was probably 60, who had been a laborer, who was uh, American Indian or had a lot of Indian in him, right? That's right. And you were able right. to tell this how fast? Was this hours or days for you to do this examination and say you this is not the guy you're looking for? I would say in this case, after the first three or four hours, I thought, you know, we this is this is not a 32-year-old white male. Oh, okay. uh-huh. It took a couple of days to do that, and then of course you have to write it up. But uh, yeah, your the the length of time it takes is the is the excavation of the vehicle, the, the recovery of the skeletal remains. You see, if you read the newspapers, the, the newspapers love this the statement, "Burn beyond recognition." Uh huh. Hogwash. I mean, that <laughs> you you can't do that. So there you have it. Due to the insights Dr. Bass gained about skeletal genetics at the body farm, he was able to unravel Rutherford's scam quickly. Back home in Connecticut, Rutherford's wife, his co-conspirator in the scam, held a fake funeral for sincere mourners that included Rutherford's parents and close friends who came to grieve his death. Now, one of the things that attracted my interest in the case is that it happened on the Monterey Autopista, a road I have driven on myself many times. What would have aroused my suspicion of Rutherford from just his travel itinerary is that he flew into Monterey to buy a dog in Reynosa, which is by car three hours northeast of Monterey on the Texas border. Any rational person would have flown into McAllen and driven 15 miles to Reynosa to get the dog. He did it his way to set up a plausible cover story and to make sure his wreck was investigated by what he assumed would be the less vigilant, less thorough Mexican authorities and to engage the linguistic and cultural boundaries that would make it harder for American insurance companies to investigate any suspicions they might have. The FBI, armed with the Bass Report, arrested Rutherford over a year later. By then, he was living under a new identity, perpetrating another fraud. He was sentenced to five years in prison. If you would like to read more about Dr. Bass's brilliant investigations, pick up these two books, Death's Acre and Beyond the Body Farm. I think you'll agree that his work changed the world of crime scene investigations forever. Next week, we'll be going to England for another story that changed the world. Talk to you then. <laughs>